Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Farah Godridge, and I'm a professor of political science at the University of California in Riverside, where I study uh, a variety of topics having to do with inequity and justice, including Indian political thought, South Asian yogic and meditative traditions, the work of uh, the Indian political thinker M.K. Gandhi, and more recently, topics like food justice and mass incarceration in the United States. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's a great privilege. As I was just saying to you off air, as it were, I've been a fan of your work since we met, which must be 15 years ago. And although I don't know you well, I've loved reading it since, and it's helped me to evolve my thinking in a wide array of topics. The feeling is mutual, Toby. Thank you for saying that. We are in a mutual fan club. (laughs) Sounds like a good thing. So, Prof, what I'd like to ask you first is to tell us right now, today or yesterday, perhaps tomorrow, what's dynamizing you, preoccupying you, worrying you, interesting you? Yes. Well, where to begin? (laughs) In terms of preoccupations and concerns, right? Maybe I'll talk about what's preoccupying and concerning, sometimes even terrifying me and keeping me up at night. And maybe I will then talk about, you know, how it is that I find myself taking action, right? In response to these concerns and preoccupations. So, you know, largely, broadly speaking, what, what is really concerning me deeply, as I'm sure so many others, is the kind of widening gaps in all forms of inequity, especially economic, but also social and political. Of course, right now in this specific moment, so many of us are watching and with great terror and concern, the sort of continued attacks on the people of Gaza by the Israeli state, which is, you know, a colonizing, occupying force, seemingly intent on decimating all Palestinian life through decades of state-sponsored dispossession and dehumanization. So that's certainly very much on my mind, and I know I'm not alone in that. But also the turn toward authoritarianism worldwide, not just here in the U.S. as we contemplate the specter of another Trump presidency. And, you know, the fact that some proportion of our fellow citizens in this country are enthusiastic about electing someone who refused to abide by the results of an election. And, you know, the damage that this could do to our so-called democratic tradition, and I say so-called, right, for for reasons that I hope are, are clear. So, you know, the, the kind of continuing assault on democracy and free speech um, and human rights worldwide I'm especially concerned about my home country of India, where I think we are seeing again the rise of authoritarianism um, and assault on on freedoms and and rights and so on, but also on a more hyper-local level here at the University of California, where we are seeing uh, an increased push to suppress academic freedom and free speech and really to criminalize dissent. And I'm happy to say more about that. Um, I happen to be the chair of the Riverside Faculty Association, um, so in that role, I am I am privy to and witness to a great deal of what's going on, both at the kind of local campus level, as well as at the regions, the level of the UC Office of the President and the regions of the University of California. So, you know, the continued marginalizing of minority populations, black and brown populations, again, not just here in the US, but also worldwide, right, where 
you know, the sense that people from these communities somehow deserve their fate, either because of who they are or because they don't work hard enough or, you know, some other set of cultural presupp presuppositions, right? Um, which also connects, I think, to the increasing resonance and power of neoliberal discourse, both here in the U.S. and worldwide, right? This idea that everyone's just responsible for themselves and their own fate, and if you're suffering, it's your own damn fault, right? So this connects, of course, to my scholarship, which I can talk about um, in a bit. And, you know, the assault on our climate, which we began chatting about when you and I first reconnected, um, this idea that the climate is not an issue, it's an overblown hoax, the resonance of this discourse. So, you know, these are all the things that preoccupy me. I'm not alone in being deeply concerned, deeply terrified about these trends oh. and worrying about the fate of the world, I'm sure. But um, in the face of, I think, what can seem like despair and overwhelm, it has seemed to me increasingly crucial to ensure that my own scholarship was deeply intertwined with activism. And that, believe it or not, is not a very popular perspective in my discipline and among my colleagues. No so, kidding. No kidding, right? Um, if you know anything about the discipline of political science here in the US, I, I don't know much about in other countries, but I certainly would love to hear. But certainly here in the US, there's you know, this idea that political science mustn't get political, right? That our job as social scientists is to remain neutral and objective, right? Which, which are the sort of pillars of positivist social science, um, which, you know, the older I get, I more resoundingly reject. Um, and it has seemed to me actually an obligation to ensure that our scholarship is in fact activist, that it does speak to questions of justice in a very um, discernible way, right? And in a way that is combined with action. Um, so that's where I've been focusing my energies. And in particular, I would say in the last decade or so, I have turned to a one specific and particularly egregious form of inequity, which is the kind of systemic injustice of the prison system here in the US. So that's where all of my when you asked, you know, what's driving me, what's what's, you know, getting me going, that's what's happening for me right now. Prof, there are maybe dozens of feckoned issues that you've mentioned there that are important. And because I think back 25 years to the so-called glasnost in political science in the United States and the attempt to make it relevant and to think about people who wrote about things like religion and culture and political economy, not in their pathetic way, but in the real Marxist way, and who wrote about political theory that was beyond, you know, people like me, stale, pale males, including those under the earth. And nothing's changed, really, despite that tendency. But let me pick up on, and by the way, if you can hear the drums in the background at all, there's a mass protest by farmers here in Madrid that has seen the streets occupied by tractors. This is a real global north <laughs> rural protest. So the capital of Spain, Madrid, is being occupied by thousands of tractors something that they threatened to do last weekend and didn't, and suddenly emerged on a kind of wildcat way today. So anyway, I want to get on to some of the other issues, uh, including Hindutva, if I may. But before that, you very kindly sent me today 
a link, a press release, I guess, about the University of California Riverside's initiative that you're leading with others to provide degree options to incarcerated people. And because probably the plurality of our listeners are in the US, but by no means the majority, maybe you could both tell us something about the initiative, but also share something about the racialized nature of incarceration in the US and the need for a second emancipation. Yes, thank you. That is absolutely crucial. So as you know, um, my most recent book was on uh, the US prison system, but more specifically on my own work inside that system, volunteering to teach practices like yoga and meditation. And I'm happy to say more about that, of course, yeah. later in the conversation. But in the course cool. of that work, in the course of having really entered and spent time within the underbelly of this system, and of course, in the course of having read a great deal of scholarship by so many of our colleagues, including, you know, friends, friends or colleagues we've had in common, you know, I have been on a long trajectory of learning about how incredibly systemically unequal and biased and unjust the U.S. prison system is. And this is true on a number of dimensions. Of course, the most sort of salient and predominant and egregious form of injustice is one that I hope is now increasingly better known, which is that the vast majority of people who end up in U.S. prisons are either black or brown and poor for the most part. So this is a system that by design, I believe, targets minority populations. And so your chances of ending up incarcerated in America if you are black are exponentially higher than if you are, of course, white and affluent. And the same is now increasingly true of um, folks from what we might call brown populations uh, of Latinx origin uh, and increasingly of native indigenous origin uh, and increasingly among immigrants, right? There's an entire um, system that is often referred to as crimigration, which is the convergence of the sort of criminal legal system with the immigration and enforcement system. So, uh, so that's the most egregious form of inequity. But, you know, in addition to race, poverty is also a major salient and predominant factor that dictates the chances of one ending up incarcerated in the U.S. Um, and that has to do with things like uh, cash bail, which often ensures that poorer populations who cannot afford bail are incarcerated uh, at much greater uh, proportions than other populations. Um, and a system that really, I think, um, due to things like prosecutorial discretion, systematically disadvantages defendants. So for, for instance, you know, one quarter of Americans who are currently incarcerated have not had, a, have, you know, not had a trial. Right. They're they're simply incarcerated either because they cannot face bail because they're awaiting trial or, you know, for any number of other reasons that have nothing to do with guilt or innocence or otherwise. So um, we have an interlocking web of laws, policies and regulations that ensure that those who end up in this system are by and large disadvantaged and marginalized. So, you know, that is what brought me, that specific systemic form of injustice is what brought what me into it. to this. Sorry, go ahead, Prof. No, yeah. that's it, that's it. Yeah. And of course, although the vast majority of these folks are men, there's a huge increase in the number of women incarcerated and almost always they are accused of 
to use an expression, victimless crimes. In other words, they're there for drugs of a certain kind. And uh, this is the other, in addition to it being really about locking up black and Latino, Latina men, it's all Latinx men, it's about locking up people who are poor on minor drug charges that would be washed away through money if they were ever leveled at what the white middle class. And that, that also right. involved choosing to criminalize, not so much criminalize, but act in police terms on the criminalization of particular kinds of drugs. No? That's exactly right. That's exactly right, Toby. So, you know, um, one, in my own work and sort of diving into criminological scholarship, um, the, the theme that emerges is the idea that this is a form of social control designed to control and corral minority populations, right? Uh, another phrase that comes to mind, and this is not, these are not my words, these are the words of highly respected critical criminologists who say this is a system designed to keep the already excluded in their place. Right. And part of the reason that the system is so effective is because it isn't just about incarcerating people for, as you say, the, the sorts of things for which if you were right, white or affluent, you would quite uh, easily have legal assistance to ensure that you wouldn't end up incarcerated for the very same drug use or for the very same crime. But in addition to that, there's an entire system of second class citizenship that follows you after incarceration. Right? There are forms of legalized discrimination in things like housing and employment. Uh, and I work actually very closely with formerly incarcerated people who are facing these forms of legalized discrimination as we speak, as they, you know, attempt to find employment. And so this entire, like I said, interlocking web of regulations and policies works together to ensure what I, what one of the scholars I have read and, and cited has called a civil death. Right. Well, it's, and that's an old expression, civilitaire mortuus, civilly dead. Exactly. It exactly. takes away your right to things like vote, but also the other issues. Veering away from that for a moment, I wonder if you could share with us a little bit about something that you've both done and written about, which is yoga for prisoners, which you've yes. you theorized and explained academically but you've also engaged in pedagogically. Could we veer onto that track for a moment? Probably? Sure, sure. And that's actually a good place to start because that will sort of neatly segue then into talking about the subsequent activist work, um, community-engaged activist work here at UC Riverside that is really a direct result of the work that I did for the book. So the question that really motivated the book project, if I could sort of start at the very beginning, and it really came out of my own history as a personal practitioner of these yogic and meditative traditions. As I say a little bit in the book, I talk a little bit personally in the book about this. I grew up in India where, of course, you know, yoga, things like yoga and meditation are just in the ether, right? One, one cannot help but, right, imbibe and absorb those, those ideas and practices. And so, you know, like so many others, I had a personal practice. And then, of course, that had dovetailed with my scholarship, right? So, because I was a scholar of these traditions, um, I was fortunately able to read texts in Sanskrit and, you know, think philosophically about them, even while I had a personal practice. And as my practice deepened, I became very concerned about something I noticed in these traditions, which is that, 
these traditions for the most part tell you that the best way to deal with your suffering is to go within, right? That your suffering is largely, and, and again, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, right? I don't mean to, to be reductive, and I, I say more in the book to, to complicate the claims I make, but for the sake of brevity here, I'll just say that these traditions, very often the message that one gets from one's yogic or meditative study is that your suffering is really mostly in your own mind, Right? So instead of dealing with one's external circumstances, these are traditions that encourage us to go within, to see our suffering as largely, right, mentally self-inflicted, to, ex- to focus on things like acceptance of our ex- external circumstances, right, rather than resistance and so on. And I became very concerned that these practices would dovetail with the word I described earlier, neoliberalism, right? A kind of social and political discourse and force that is now increasingly resonant, as we know, which is also reenacting and reproducing the message that your suffering is largely your own fault. So I became very concerned because I increasingly saw commentaries by scholars of these traditions. I don't know if you have heard this term, mech mindfulness, right? No, and now I don't increasingly. Know I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So McMindfulness is a term that has become increasingly resonant and relevant by people who study these traditions, uh, you know, scholars like myself, who are basically concerned that these traditions are increasingly being employed, right, to give people the message that their suffering is just their own fault. So if they could just go within and focus on their own self-improvement, then everything will be fine, right? So you see, for instance, you know, Google brings in mindfulness coaches, to teach meditation to their employees, but there's no inquiry into like, what is the systemic source of the stress, right? We just want to make people more productive. Or you have public schools, I believe in places like the Bay Area, where, you know, children from deeply marginalized and disadvantaged communities at these schools are being taught to meditate so they can be more disciplined. They can behave better, but nobody wants to talk about like, what is the source of their stress, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of what brought me Beautiful. to take my own practice and side prisons, right? This incredibly yeah. Yeah. unjust space where people are being not just severely marginalized and disadvantaged, but, you know, those messages are being reproduced. And so that's what motivated the book project. And in the course of the project, of course, it was very clear to me that I could not simply write about this in the abstract. I had to find my way inside prisons and do the work. Uh, And I speak a lot about that in the book, I talk about my access to prisons, how I found myself in volunteer communities, which were teaching yoga and meditation in prisons here locally, but concurrently how while I was trying to learn as a volunteer, I was also struggling to write about this as a scholar and the uphill battles I faced both from the prison system and from our university IRB, which seeks to discipline what can be said about prisons by scholars and seeks to discipline the access and transparency we can seek. So, you know, those are large, complicated questions. But the short version, Toby, is that this allowed me, you know, about four years, four four years of this work of sort of relentlessly going inside prisons, either as a volunteer or as a scholar, wherever I could get access, really allowed me to understand, I think, the full scope of how these traditions were being offered and also how they were being received by the people they were being offered to. And I did this through, you know, a variety of means, as I said, my volunteer work, but also ethnography, 
in one particular case where I had the sanction of the prison and the IRB. And then through interviews, um, in-depth, semi-structured, um, long-form interviews with both people who volunteered to teach inside prisons and people who received these practices who were either incarcerated or formerly incarcerated. And so, you know, what I learned in the course of this work is that indeed my concerns were not unfounded, that some of my intuitions and provisional intuitions and hunches about how these practices were being taught and employed as forms of social control were actually borne out. But as in all research, as you know, Toby, right, the answers are never simple and uncomplicated. And there was what I would call a kind of dissenting minority narrative, both among volunteers and among people who were receiving these practices in which, you know, they were very clear that these were not practices that they were going to employ to accept their fate, to simply improve themselves as a response to collective or systemic injustice. And they had really thought through the kind of resistant potentials of these practices, the kind of critical nonconformist and resistant potentials. So that's the short version of the book project. And I, I should add that the prize-winning book is called Freedom Inside. And just for a bit of context, because, you know, the plurality but not the majority of listeners are in the U.S., IRB means Institutional Review Board, and it's they're called ethics committees in other anglo That's right. Worlds. That's right. These committees are there to produce in academic form surveillance of scholarship in the name of the Nuremberg trials and the emergence of individual human rights from those. And they're there basically to protect individuals and cohorts from being operated upon or tested illegally, improperly. So they're really about pharmaceutical companies around the world, Indian, Japanese, US, German, British predominantly. And when drugs are being tested in those countries and elsewhere, there are IRBs set up that are not about universities. They're about corporations, governments, and often ethics philosophers. Sadly, this tradition has been, or this norm, which is not a bad one, has been imported into universities to attack oral history, although they kind of got out of it, ethnographers, sociologists, political science, you name it, people who actually want to listen to people. And as you're saying, this is an assault on academic freedom in the name of, you know, those of us who are quite innocent in doing this, we're not killing people. We're not dismembering them. We're not killing animals like the people who gave this thing its origin did. So that's right. Could we could we talk about that really briefly, Toby, if if, if I may, just to to follow up on that, because you've you've raised such an important point. And and this is there's actually a whole chapter of my book that I dedicate to my struggle with IRB. And the reason I do that is because, you know, I I first want to say that our university IRB was actually incredibly helpful to the extent possible. But that said, you know, within the confines of what they could do to help me, it became very clear to me that the IRB here in the U.S., certainly in U.S. university contexts, and I'd be curious to know what it's like in other, you know, other national contexts, is really a risk management outfit, right? <laughs> I shouldn't it's a laugh, co- that's so Well, I mean, it's, yeah. it's what we would call CYA. Can I, can I say the word ass on this podcast? Cover your ass. 
right? It's the outfit that's designed to ensure that anything that we who are affiliated with the university do is not going to result in a lawsuit, right? And if I could just say, I mean, the, the thing that blew my mind when I began doing this work and approaching IRB, right? And again, to, to be absolutely fair, you know, IRB officials were, were extended themselves as much as they could right. to try and right. help me. But that right. said, their party line was, the very first thing they said to me was, oh yeah, sure, we're of course happy to approve research inside prisons as long as you have the authorization of the prison itself. Can we just spend a moment on that, right? IRB's party line was the very same institution with at best a dubious record of human rights, with documented systematic violations and dehumanizations that are on the record, that is the very same system that is going to be tasked with right. so approving. Informed, informed right? consent cannot be given by the civilly dead. It can only be given by the institutional managers. That is controlling and corralling right. and dehumanizing wow. and violating that population. Yeah. And that is what IRB says constitutes ethical review of my project. Let's just sit with that for a minute. Right? I, I think the technical feminist Marxist response to that is barf on a spoon. Yes, I did a lot of barfing on a spoon <laughs> in private, let's just say. But right, as, but I mean, the IRB had no choice. Right, this was people, what they were legally required to people say. People doing this stuff are often not wanting to get in the way, not wanting to obstruct, but they have their obligations. That's right. That's and right, and that's why I keep saying repeatedly that these IRB officials did what they could. Yeah, right within understood. the constraints of their position. Understood and appreciated. Um, I wanted to go off to a bit of a, a Hindu tangent here, if I may, <laughs> moment, Prof. Which is, if I go back 50 years to when I was a political science, almost 50 years, a political science major. And, and you've defected since then. <laughs> well, <laughs> I took off my white coat and stopped being scientific. <laughs> One of the things I studied was development. And the logic in those days, when the idea of development studies and this is not for your benefit, this is mansplaining for listeners, was an extrapolation, a parthenogenesis from fantasies about the United States, West Germany, France, Britain, but most of all the United States, as to what should be the new non-tribal, essentially secular national institutions that would derive development. For the next 20 or 30 years, the argument about India not developing was to do with Hindu passivity, so-called, among other things. Yeah? And one of the things you tackle in some of your work is the complex dialectic within the ideas of Mahatmas K. Gandhi, but others too, Tagore also, a kind of dialectic between what is very much a an early Protestant John Milton line about accepting the world as it is and it's doing things to you and your mind can make things better, which is very Protestant, and a much more dynamic, assertive self, right? So if you can accept my stereotypes for a moment and then reject them, how does that fit with the new, really vicious Hindutva 
of the last 30 years, but especially under the current regime of Modi and his cohort, where, well, anyway, you can explain this better than I can, but as I say, please criticise my precepts, but explain where they're wrong or where they're right and explain things to us, if you could. How much time do we have? (laughs) You know, I'll begin by saying actually that the stereotypes that you have just identified are, are actually quite apt with the caveat, of course, that we know that they are stereotypes. And really this, I would say that this actually first goes back to the colonial and anti-colonial era when, as, as you know, right, the sort of British orientalizing of the kind of British colonial apparatus was in fact precisely to say that these people need our governance because they are passive, they are childlike, their culture, right, makes them sort of prone to, to, to sort of acceptance and compliance and, and, and so on, right? And so the origin of Hindutva, what is today Hindutva, the origin of the political parties that are, are today, you know, in power in India and are the force of, of spreading Hindutva actually goes back to this moment when... You're always blaming Ma- us. It's always our I know, fault. it's all your fault. I'm so we sorry, gave, Toby. You gave you the post office, the <laughs> yeah, railway. Look what you- That's right. You gave us the constitution. <laughs> you gave us the language. You gave it all to us and look at us ingrates now. I know, right? Exactly. So so the, the, the genesis of Hindutva actually lies in the... The, I think actually at the, at that time, quite apt understanding that if, if the, the Indian body politic was to respond, right, it had to respond in an aggressive, masculinist, right, activist way. And this was actually the source of the dissonance and disagreement between Gandhi, the leading anti-colonial figure at the time, and his antagonists from, we'll call them, you know, early Precursors to Hindutva, but they were really the 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 founders of the RSS, which is you know a kind of political body that is the precursor to today's Hindutva. So this was the source of the antagonism, with Gandhi saying, "No, we must embrace, in fact, the meditative and yogic traditions as part of our freedom movement." And and keep in mind that for Gandhi, that did not mean pacifism and acceptance. Gandhi, in fact, had a very activist understanding of how to right? Integrate yogic and meditative practice into resistance, but it was nonviolent, right? He rejected the premise that in order to be aggressive and disruptive, one had to be violent. That's the premise he rejected. And his antagonists within the Indian freedom movement were these, right, precursors to Hindutva who said, no, no, to be masculinist, to be aggressive, to be assertive, to be disruptive requires violence. And that's actually what cost Gandhi his life because he was assassinated by a, an advocate and a, and a partisan of that other view. So that's the genesis of Hindutva. And if you look at it, and by the way, I am no scholar of Hindutva. I think that there are others who can speak much more, you know, eloquently to this. But I'll speak as, you know, an Indian American, as a as a as somebody who was born and, and and raised partly in India, and who is watching, right, with great terror and concern, what is happening in India. And I will just say that what I am seeing in India today is makes it unrecognizable, right, to the country that I grew up in. And and what is of deepest concern to me is this notion that and the, that Hindutva's most predominant assumption is that India is a Hindu nation, right? That Hinduism provides, in the same way that I think we hear today in the U.S., 
conservatives saying that the U.S. is fundamentally a Christian nation, that it belongs to Christians and English speakers, that same nativist sentiment is expressed in Hindutva with the idea that in India is a Hindu nation, that anyone who is not a Hindu must either be subservient to Hindu principles or leave, right? And that includes Muslims, Christians, Zoroastrians like myself and others, right? So a real, a real kind of aggressive masculine posture, not only toward minoritized populations, but also on the world stage. So that goes along with the fifth largest, I believe, military in the world, right? An increasing militarization of the Indian state, right? And an increasing sort of repression of any dissent, an increasing criminalization of any dissent against this kind of singular narrative and discourse. So Hindutva has its origins in a kind of what we might call, right, like a salutary anti-colonial sentiment, for lack of a better word. And it has now evolved into, right, a kind of identity that allows India to feel strong on the world stage, if you will. Does that make sense? Unfortunately, yes. Uh, Prof, I want to touch on some of the things you've mentioned, but move on to another area of your work, which is environmentalism and ecology and so on, in which in some of your writings you engage what is allegedly the Western tradition, and I have trouble with that term, but it certainly is the dominant philosophical mode of German, French, and English thought. Namely, God gave us this world. We can lay waste to it. Those people who do not make written semiotic marks thereupon are not owners of it. They have no entitlement to it. This is the kind of classic Hegelian position, which is clearly still dominant around the world. You juxtapose this with a very subtle account of the similarities and differences between Tagore and Gandhi about these things. Now, apologies for my stereotypes and my mispronunciations, but could you elucidate a little bit of, of that discussion? Because I think it's tremendously productive and important. And by the way, your pronunciations are perfect. <laughs> That, that's one less thing you have to worry about, let's say. You can, you can worry about a lot of other things, but, the but that's office, not one. The railways. That's right, the constitution, right, the constitution. and the English language. And, yeah, well, anyway. Yeah. yeah, right. Yes, so you're absolutely right, Toby, that, you know, the sort of, and, and, I, and this is actually very interesting when I teach this to undergraduates because they sort of come alive and they, they realize that, you know, we, we actually do a close read um, of some biblical texts where we find, right, that this is not just um, secular political theorists, but this actually goes back to Christian theology in which it is said that God has commanded us to subdue the earth, right? And God has commanded us to make it fruitful for our own purposes. And in fact, if you look at the genesis of private property in, in the Western, and again, I agree entirely with you that these, these categories are problematic, but to the extent that we can rely on them, if we look at the genesis of private property in the so-called Western canon, I've just finished teaching John Locke 
to my undergrads. And John oh, Locke very great. clearly says, yes, exactly right. <laughs> speaking of British things, <laughs> speaking of important well, British legacies. Yeah, that, that, that one, I, I won't even begin to defend. I mean, there that you go. I will defend. Yes. In terms of its insidious, invidious influence in the United States, it's almost the worst of all, I think. But anyway. Yet, yet um, we cannot escape it. Toby. No. Yep. And this is what I tell my students when they when they ask occasionally, why should we be reading these dead white guys? And what I say to them is, if you don't read them, you cannot have a firm grasp and a foundation on how we got here. And do you really think these ideas are not no longer with us? Yeah. And that's when they're like, oh, yeah. Okay, well, normative determinism, so. normative determinism, the word lock. <laughs> right. 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 So if you look at locks, you know, chapter on private property in his second treatise on government, he clearly said, the, says the earth belongs to us and God gave the earth to us in common, but we are able to appropriate from the common stock because we put our individual labor into it. So anything we put our labor into, we are entitled to. And of course, the we here is, right, people who have resources, because guess who, who's not entitled to that? The savages of the Americas, right? Those people don't have the same entitlements that the rest of us do. So yes, you're absolutely right that there is a long tradition of what we might call anthropocentrism, right, which is arguably has has its origins in both reason and revelation, we might say, as using using Locke's own terminology, that, you know, the earth belongs to us. God commanded us to subdue it. It is our moral, if not religious, obligation mm -hmm. to do so. Mm -hmm. And who is it that doesn't know how to do that? Oh, those people, right? Those natives, those savages, those pacifists, those people who have not understood God's command and who must hear God's word, right? To whom God's word must be brought. So indeed, a long tradition of, of this form of anthropocentrism. Speaking about Gandhi, actually, I, I haven't written really anything on Tagore on this particular topic, but I would say, you know, speaking about Gandhi, there is a temptation to view him, right, as a kind of anti-anthropocentric thinker. Because if you look at Gandhi, and, and here we have to look at his life and practice as much as we look at his writings, Right. It's not so much that he rejected this idea that, right, we own the earth and we must subdue it. I think Gandhi's approach to these questions, by the way, I don't think of Gandhi as a proto-environmentalist except by accident, because what Gandhi ends up doing is being very preoccupied with control over bodily needs and material desires. That is a centerpiece of the Gandhian project and endeavor. And in fact, I'm in the middle of writing right now about some of the more problematic aspects of that, of that preoccupation in Gandhi, which I've, I've sort of finally come to the conclusion that my relationship with Gandhi is, is at an unceremonious end, but that's a different, that's a topic for another day. But one of the reasons that I have, I have been so interested in thinking about Gandhi is that part of his project was to instill right, that sense of what, what we earlier call that sense of assertion, right, in response to colonial, um, the, the colonial project among Indians. And part of the way that he thought Indians could do that was precisely by reducing their needs, simplifying their consumptions and desires, and thereby rejecting what he saw as the most insidious thing about not just the Western colonial project, but the modern project, right? And he was, I think, actually quite astute about distinguishing these two. He did not believe that Western necessarily equaled modern in every case, but 
to his mind, the most insidious thing about the incursions of the Western slash colonial slash modern project was the colonization of desire through right things like the burgeoning uh, of capitalism and so on, the kind of bringing of India and Indians into the sort of global capitalist commercial fold through right selling stuff through increasing material preoccupations and consumption. So for Gandhi, he ends up being a kind of disruptor, right, of the anthropocentric tradition in this sort of backdoor way, I would call it, where he is advocating for Indians to give up their material desires to boycott British cloth, but not just British cloth, right, to be local and self-reliant in their production, to to reject right global forms of increasingly global forms of production and consumption and it seems to me that ends up being right one of the more resonant aspects of his project which has not in fact survived him because if we look today at india right india has resoundingly rejected those aspects of gandhianism and has quite firmly found itself in the the camp of sort of global global capital if you will Prof, I think there's somewhere in your work, and correct me if I'm wrong, where you say that Gandhi does accept the importance of a human dominion over the rest of nature. And that's why I say that I don't consider him a proto-environmentalist in the way that is tempting. It's very tempting, right, to look at this figure and see the the simple man in the loincloth spinning his own cloth, right, urging people to, um, you know, clean their own waste and, and, and urging people away from modern machinery and so on. So all of that makes it tempting to, again, stereotype him, to sort of put him in a box and say, oh, he is our early inspiration for environmentalism. No, no. Not in the least. And, um, Prof, I have, we've got about a quarter of an hour left, and I have a couple of questions for you, after which I'd like to hand it over to you to add to or subtract from what we've discussed. The first question takes us back to the carceral project, if I can call it that. Yes. And the work you folks are doing at yes. Suicide. That's right. That's right. I'm glad that we... Uh, won't run out of time to talk about this because this is actually to go back to your initial question, the thing I am most now preoccupied and preoccupied with and driven by. So as I mentioned, you know, following all of that work I did inside prisons in the course of preparing the book, um, I connected with local scholars, many, many wonderful people who were so helpful in teaching me about the prison system and, and access to it. And it turned out that one of the people I had connected with a wonderful colleague um, at UC Irvine had actually started a pilot program in which UC Irvine was going to bring faculty members inside prison to get students inside prison, incarcerated students, to a BA degree, a BA degree from the University of California. Now, why is this so unusual, you might ask? This is unusual because although there is, as you can imagine, right, a great deal of sort of prison volunteerism, for lack of a better word, where, you know, academics are going inside prisons and teaching college level classes, there are very few degree pathways, right? It's one thing to offer a course here and a course there, but it's quite another to offer a systemic degree pathway that allows all of this, those courses to lead up to an actual bachelor's degree, right? This is, um, not common at all. So UC Irvine, I must, I must start by crediting them. They were the pioneers. But 
the person pioneering that effort approached me knowing that I was interested in prison work and said, we think UCR is the most logical campus to replicate this model. It's not given, a, it's right? adjacent to Orange County rather than in the middle of it. Right, exactly. <laughs> right. And but there are many reasons that we can imagine UCR as the kind of logical next, yeah, yeah. right? The next a, frontier. Uh, UC, UC Irvine, just to interrupt and give some context for people, um, there's a 10 campus University of California system. It's maybe the most wonderful, ex, you know, experiment in public higher education I know about, but it's class and race based. And the class and race basis finds UC Riverside having a, a greater diversity, probably in terms of different racial formations than anywhere else, and essentially being a place, along with Merced, that is dedicated to people who are first generation in college, and so closer to a world in which living in the informal slash criminalized economy is part of life. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. That's a great way of saying it. So, and additionally, right, many people, many scholars at UCR, many of my colleagues, right, are deeply engaged with um, prison work. And, and as you know, the prison abolition movement, right, is a, is a big force on campus. So in any event, this work began in mid-2021. So it's now been two and a half years that we have been working on this. And as you can imagine, nothing in the world of prisons or the UC bureaucracy moves quickly, which explains why it has taken us right this long. But to cut a long story very short, we are we have now had 36 incarcerated students apply to UC Riverside. And if all goes well, we expect some number of them to form the first cohort of incarcerated students at UCR who will matriculate in the fall of 2024. So let me say a little bit about what this model entails. What is the specific education model um, to make this successful? The, the key thing here is that we had to establish two kinds of partnerships. One, of course, was with a prison that was within striking distance of our campus, and we were able to find such a prison. But the second was the more important, which is it's important to find a community college that is already operating inside that prison and awarding two-year degrees. And so for your non-US-based listeners who may not know, right, we have a, we have a kind of a two-tier um, college system in the US where uh, some students go to a four-year college, which gets you to a bachelor's degree, but some students actually go to a two-year college, which gets you what's called an associate's degree from where you can often transfer into a four-year university to complete your bachelor's degree. So this is a crucial piece of this project because it means that we have students, we have a pool of incarcerated students at this prison who have already completed two years of coursework toward a bachelor's degree, which means that we UCR are only on the hook for providing the final two years of coursework, which is right much easier on us in terms of resources and so on. So the idea is to take a pool of students from that pipeline who already have two years of coursework to have them apply to UCR as transfer students, right? And then in the final two years of their education to bring UCR faculty inside the prison to teach the very same courses that they are already approved to teach on campus with the only difference being that these courses are now taught at a different site, almost like you can consider it like a satellite, um, satellite site of the campus. 
So that's the model. It has taken, you know, years of uphill effort, you know, uh, ironically, we have found that the prison system, the California Department of Corrections has been much more an amenable and easier to work with, ironically, than the UC bureaucracy on this. This may not surprise you as a former faculty member in the University of California system, but nonetheless, you know, uphill battles and obstacles notwithstanding, we are now offering a major through the School of Education at UC Riverside, and the major is called Education, Society, and Human Development. And we hope to matriculate between 25 to 35 students this fall and to bring them two bachelor's degree, to, to graduate them in two years with a bachelor's degree in education. And this, I hope, will be a, a, a kind of ongoing reproducing, sustaining project where every year we will admit a new cohort and every year we will graduate the previous cohort. That's the goal. Congratulations. I'm deeply admiring. I used to do uh, distance education in prisons where, you know, documents, materials, tapes were sent to prisons hundreds of miles away. And our big problem was that <laughs> the students' essays were always being read by the screws, the warden, etc., in order to make sure that they were appropriate. And they would copy the essays and then submit them as their own for th their own studies. <laughs> wow. That is, I have not heard this before. Wow. Well, you're probably <laughs> avoiding that one, but this is a great project. So my, my last question before throwing to you, Prof. F, is this. One of the areas that you've worked on is something that didn't exist when I was a political science student, which is comparative political theory. And you've been a, an important protagonist in this. And when I read this, I feel some hope for my lapsed discipline, but I also feel as though it's a thousand years behind because this is still not something that I'm reading in, well, perhaps I well, I really open it, but I'm not seeing when I occasionally look at the contents pages of the American Political Science Review, for example. Can you explain to us what comparative political theory is and what your role in it is or what you're seeking to do? Because, as I say, you've made some very significant and from my perspective, very valuable interventions. Thank you. Political science, as you know, Toby, given your history in the discipline, is an incredibly conservative discipline, right? And up to about a couple of decades ago, when I was in graduate school, the only thinkers who were being taught in political theory courses, whether at the undergraduate or the graduate level, were people whom we might call, again, with appropriate, you know, um, skepticism, people who are part of the Western canon, right? In other words, dead white guys under the ground, as you, as you said earlier. And really, it was not until about 20 years ago that people started to think, hmm, perhaps, perhaps we might look beyond that canon for sources of insight, theoretical insight, um, about politics. Perhaps we might look to other traditions. And you're absolutely right that this was way behind the curve, right? Other disciplines were, ha were had had these conversations and had begun interventions long before political science and political theory had, and had, right, appropriately 
acknowledged, right, the provincial, the provincial um, nature of their own disciplines and had appropriately begun to sort of broaden, right, what constituted knowledge. Political science did not do this until several decades ago. And so my early work, right, and I'm, I take pains to distinguish between my early work because now my work has moved in, I would say, somewhat different of a direction, although not entirely. In my early work as a junior scholar, I was very concerned with getting the discipline itself to think beyond its own parochialism. And then thinking through methodologically, what would that mean, right? Because it's not sufficient to simply say we should read people from other traditions. Yes, of course we should. But what does that mean methodologically? What does it mean in terms of thinking about, for instance, canons, right? Who do we look to when we want to understand, for instance, the Indian canon or the Chinese canon? Do we simply reproduce the power relations right, that have led us to think of our Western canon in a certain way? Or do we look for minoritized voices and dissenting voices in those canons? These are just these are just a few of the methodological questions that I thought it was important to address in this early moment of my career. What does it mean to interpret a text from another tradition, right? What set of commitments, resources, tools and methodologies would you bring to that endeavor? And believe it or not, these were controversial questions. I mean, I remember having conversations with senior colleagues who said, why do I have to know Hindi or Gujarati to, to understand Gandhi, right? So I made a specific methodological argument about immersion, right? Cultural and linguistic immersion, immersion, which I thought would be uncontroversial, but it was not, right? People resented being told, right? That in order to, 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 to understand well, a thinker from a different tradition, one had to do some extent, to some extent, a kind of immersion, kind of ethnographic, right? What I call dislocation of the self. So these were some of the large methodological questions and concerns that I had immersed myself in as a kind of, I hope, I like to think, you know, kind of early work in comparative political theory. Well, I apologize for not periodizing your work aptly, uh, because I guess I didn't realize that that was from another epoch. But it seems to me from the things you've said about more recent work that actually this earlier intent was has informed a lot of what's gone on since. Is quite right. Quite right. You're, yeah. you're quite right, Toby. It's not fair to say, actually, that there's a complete disconnect between my earlier work and my later work, because I came to the work of Gandhi, of course, through my interest in not just non-Western, again, with appropriate skepticism about these terms, right? Not just non-Western, but more specifically, right? Indian political thought in which I was better, better versed. And then through the work of Gandhi, I went on to study things like civil disobedience and non-violence and what it means to be assertive and disruptive in response to injustice. And of course, what it means to take yogic and meditative practices and to employ them in the service of assertive disruptive, nonviolent resistance to injustice. You say who is a difficult woman? Yes, I think that would be one way to describe me. Oh, Perhaps really. we could say I'm a, I'm a yogi who is very focused on resisting and disrupting the status quo. I think you're quo. a yogi who's a difficult woman. Well, yes, we can, we, let's stick with that. Um, well, yesterday I recorded a conversation with another friend of mine and uh, she's edited a book called Rebel Girls, exclamation point. And although it's in Spanish and none of the people in it are English speakers, they use the English language term 
because it resonates in Spanish. You know right. what I mean? And, That's right. Um, the other day I was talking to somebody who was had been described to me by her, had told me that she'd been described as difficult. And I said, are you still difficult? And she said, yes, and always. And I take that as a badge of honor, I hope she said. <laughs> right? So, right? So it makes sense that I would then end up inside prisons. But right? Where you always belonged, seems to me. <laughs> That's right. No, but but in, in all seriousness, I think this is a wonderful project. And as you say, it's part of a valuable UC tradition, probably originating with Angela Davis, of the need for a second emancipation, because the first one was so incomplete. Prof, to finish up, I wonder if I could hand over to you if there's something you'd like to add that we haven't discussed or something you'd like to place as an adjunct to what we have mentioned. That's a good question. I think our conversation has been really wide-ranging. I think I would just urge your listeners to check out UCR Lifted, our prison program is goes by the acronym LIFTED, which I don't love, and it stands for Leveraging Inspired Futures Through Education. Oh, uh, it is, I know, not great. I don't love it, but it is the, it is the acronym of our partners at UC <laughs> Irvine, so we, okay. are, we are in that umbrella. But I'd, I'd, like your, I'd really like to urge your listeners to check out our website, which is lifted.ucr.edu, and to you know, engage our work to the extent possible. Um, to show us your support, um, if particularly, it, you know, we are operating on a shoestring budget. We have no funding from the University of California at Riverside. <laughs> we have zero money from our campus, so we are hustling for grants, for external funding, for every kind of resource we can possibly get um, to keep this program self-sustaining. So I want to make a plug for it and a plug to your listeners to please reach out and just let us know any ways in which you can support us or have ideas for, for fund, funding sources. Sorry for the plug, but I couldn't resist. No, we are talking about the United States. But in all seriousness, what used to be a very cheap education in the University of California no longer is. As you well know, right, you were here during the famous era of the, the austerity and, and budget cuts. And if anything, um, things are no better now. So... So my, my gratitude to your listeners for, you know, anything you can do to support us. Well, thank you so much. It's been wonderful talking to you. As I've said in my fawning, pathetic way several times in the last hour, I've learned a lot from your work in the past. But I actually feel as I've learned even more today. So thank you so much. So much. Thank you so much for the invitation, Toby. As I said, the feeling is mutual. You are clearly a giant in the field of cultural studies, so the honor is mine. I'm, I'm so honored to be invited to this conversation, and I hope it will continue. Absolutely.